Hello and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. This is the second of two podcasts discussing the government's new innovation strategy, which was published in July this year. Last week, we discussed the implications of the strategy for research-intensive universities, and this week, we're looking at the strategy through the eyes of industry. With me to discuss the business view is Paul Stein, Chief Technology Officer of Rolls-Royce. Paul Stein, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Gavin. It's great to be here, and I'm talking to you from one of our factories in Derby. Fantastic. The first section or pillar of the industrial strategy is titled Unleashing Business. What are the main issues here? What, what's stopping UK industry from being even more innovative? The conditions for innovation, the conditions for innovation to grow are quite complex. And I think what I'd like to do is just give you our views on the innovation architecture as seen by business. And then we can perhaps drill down into some of the detail which the innovation strategy brings out. On the top of the list for me is people and culture. You know, the skills that we need, both technical skills and business skills, and a kind of can-do culture across business, which is down to us. And I think we're quite proud of our can-do culture in Rolls-Royce. But I think it's something that every innovative company needs. Uh, the, the second main pillar is investment. And it's not just early stage investment, it's patient investment to take companies through growth phases. And in long cycle businesses, and we here in Derby are in aerospace, also in nuclear, which are both very long cycle businesses, but many of the technologies for net zero will also be long cycle. That investment has to be patient. The third is definitely the demand signal. There's no point in innovating something that nobody wants. <laughs> so you have to have a market. You have to have perhaps government procurement as a stimulus for innovation or maybe a change in regulation. And the forthcoming net zero challenge opens up all sorts of opportunities there. And then we have to be underpinned by various things. So infrastructure is, is important. For example, in advanced manufacturing, we have a great network of advanced manufacturing centers in the UK. They are vital. Supply chains, no business is an island. Uh, it's served by other businesses and they have to be agile and as capable as the innovative businesses. The science base, ready access to it and it working on the right things is absolutely vital. The regulation framework, but most of all, in terms of the underpinnings is agility, you know, a sense that we have to move at pace uh, and a sense that we're in a global race against other countries who want to eat our lunch by being quicker than we are. So that's a whole series of things. And many of those issues are indeed addressed in some way or other or brought up within the innovation strategy. Uh, and I thought you've given us a great list there. So let's explore some of those in detail. The first thing you talked about was people, people and culture. And there is a chapter within the innovation strategy about people. So explore some of these issues for us in Rolls-Royce. Clearly, you need highly skilled mm. people. How easy is it for you to get the people that you need mm. with the skills that you need? Well, our requirements for, for people really fall into two big buckets, technical skills and what I'll call business-minded skills. So in technical skills, what we're seeing is skill shortages in some of the upcoming technology areas, particularly in electrification, as various parts of our economy, whether it be electric vehicles or electric aircraft, 
or grid distribution requires electrical skills. Nuclear skills are becoming in short supply as nuclear is seen more and more as one of the key uh, aspects of decarbonization. And in those skills, it's very important that the education system gets ahead of the curve. And, you know, traditionally, this has been a challenge simply because of the lag in the system. I think though I'll pick those two out. I could have picked other skill areas like artificial intelligence, but I'll just pick those two out. And then business skills. Now, I'm delighted that the innovation strategy does pick out business skills because I think if there's one area where the UK needs to up its game a bit is the pipeline of entrepreneurs. You know, clearly we've got one or two sort of big, big ticket, big name entrepreneurs that we're very proud of in the UK. But actually, we need more than one or two big ticket people. We need a sea of business minded leaders who understand the language of business and actually innovation. So pulling ideas through to uh, an outcome that provides benefit requires business minded skill set. We need more of those. So I'm very pleased that's brought out in the innovation strategy. And you mentioned when we were talking there about the need for the education system to get ahead of the curve. And I'm interested the extent to which the issue is having new people entering the workforce with the right skills and the balance of having existing people in the workforce who need to reskill and Mm. how companies like Rolls-Royce are involved. Well, actually in both of those sides of things. Mm. Yes, I mean, you're quite right, Gavin, and, and, and many skills can be acquired through retraining. And, you know, quite famously, when we had a shortage of digital skills, uh, we had some digital natives who were people that were trained in digital, in AI, in programming, in the other aspects of digital at um, university. And then we had a cadre of digital converts, people with mechanical engineering backgrounds and other backgrounds who became digital and have turned into very good digital engineers. Uh, We need the same mindset behind nuclear and electrical skills. And I do believe, you know, there is a role for educational institutions in helping that transition, in creating kind of new types of qualifications, which are transitional qualifications, moving people from one skill area to another to help us innovate better. No, really interesting. We could discuss this all day, but there were so many things in your list of issues, and I want to explore some of the others. You talked about investment, and you particularly emphasised sort of patient investment over time, particularly for things that are going to take some long time to come through. What's in the industrial strategy that gives you sort of hope that things are moving in the right direction? And and how actually does the UK compare with, with other countries in this area? So first of, all, first of all, I'd like to make a general point, and then I'll ask, answer your question in more detail. You know, one of the things we need to get better of in the UK is the understanding, the people understanding, the cultural understanding between business, government, academia, and finance for that matter, but particularly business, government, and academia. And I think historically, we've been quite stovepiped in the UK compared with other nations. You know, people have had careers in government, careers in academia or careers in industry, and the amount of movement between those pillars has been quite limited. And part of solving this problem in understanding how patient capital, regulation, industry and academia can work together to create an innovative outcome 
is actually it actually goes slightly back to the people and culture point i do agree but it's providing a bit more permeability between those areas so that's kind of one of the areas where i think the uk needs to improve compared with other nations i mean i'll cite germany that has far more permeability between uh, those three areas than we do um, in the uk but now just turning on to the money side i mean there's things that we do really well in the uk and i would really cite the aerospace technology institute as an example of getting it right you know aerospace is a a leading employer in the uk a success story for the uk we remain the world's second biggest aerospace economy and to do so we do need some continuous support from government because we're up against other industries for example the might of the american aerospace industry that's propped up by a big defense budget and so the ati the aerospace technology institute is an example of industry, government, and academia working together to create the investment framework, which allows industry to have confidence to co-invest and aligns that investment with the market. So, you know, without being too sort of triumphalist about my own industry uh, in, in aerospace, I would say that's a pretty good case study where the UK has done it well and where other countries look to us and say, tell us more about the ATI, please. No, that is really interesting and potentially a model that can roll out across other sectors. You talked in your opening remarks also about demand signal and the way that government could do certain things that would help set the framework for the market. One you mentioned was uh, the use of procurement. One you mentioned was changes in regulation. And I just wanted to explore with you a little bit those two things and, and, and what you think both procurement and regulation could do to sort of drive forward innovation a bit in the UK? Yeah, thank you. So I feel quite strongly about both of those. And those are the biggest levers, actually, that government has beyond pump priming money to actually get the economy more innovative. So in procurement, perhaps the departments I'll single out as one that is now going through a transition and doing much better than it used to is the Ministry of Defence. So defence procurement is potentially a massive tool to stimulate high-risk, high-payoff industries. And I think we went through a rather bleak patch in the UK where we saw defence procurement simply as buying a shopping list, sometimes from other countries' technologies, which does nothing for our exports, nothing for our skills, and actually has the potential for harming our uh, national security as well if we get that wrong. Things are now changing, and uh, we're delighted to be part of the Tempest program. Now, there's other programs across government uh, procurement and defence, but I'll single out Tempest as a change in all that, a realisation the UK has to have for its national security, its own combat air capability in the form of the uh, Tempest sixth-generation fighter jet. But it's far more than that. It's creating a whole load of dual-use technologies that are spilling over into other parts of material science, aerospace. It's giving us a bargaining chip to talk to other nations now, and we can trade technologies we've developed in uh, Tempest with technologies other nations have developed. And it's completely revived an industry that was in danger of languishing. And now I'm sure uh, I'm just talking about an area that I know about. I'm sure in in the area of healthcare, in other areas of national security, uh, and in other areas of procurement, similar rules apply. But the power of government procurement to help stimulate the economy it has been hugely underestimated. And I speak from some experience when I spent some time as a civil servant in the MOD, 
during a period where procurement was literally seen as buying things for the armed forces rather than part of our economy. Now, regulation is another tool that can be used to to great effect. And I'm going to give you an example because I think it's hard to generalize about regulation. You know, regulation is quite a broad church of, you know, different sort of facets of stimulating an innovative economy. But for example, in order to decarbonize aviation, we need a big industry to grow in the area of sustainable aviation fuels. Now, sustainable aviation fuels, these are fuels that don't use carbon from fossils, but use carbon from an atmospheric source. So you're recycling carbon and hence your net zero. Uh, these fuels uh, are not going to be as cheap as fossils. Digging fossils out of the ground and burning them has been very cheap, which is why the world has um, become rather sort of complacent in the past sort of 100 years, really, uh, in creating its energy from fossil fuels. These sustainable aviation fuels are not just going to happen through natural market forces because they're more expensive. It requires smart regulation on behalf of government for example, to start mandating increasing blends of sustainable aviation fuels into our aircraft. There are other ways of doing it. But now that there, you're forcing an industry to grow, you're forcing innovation, because now people are thinking, gosh, you know, I have to buy that fuel now, and I've got to get the price down as low as I can. So you're creating a demand signal in the um, aviation industry, you're getting the chemistry and physics um, sort of departments, hopefully of many universities now thinking, how can I make How can I make uh, cheaper pathways to creating sustainable aviation fuels and stimulating a whole economy that wasn't there before through the simple measure of saying everybody has to put 20, 30, 40 percent blend of sustainable fuels into our aircraft. So that's a really excellent example of how simple regulation can create massive innovation in the economy. It's interesting in challenge specifically with aviation because it's such an international business. And you could clearly mandate this for for domestic flights. But as soon as you're talking about international flights, presumably you you have to have mechanisms to drive these kind of regulatory signals in many countries. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. And and I was oversimplifying the aviation one to keep the podcast down to a few minutes, Gavin. But um, no, you're right. Uh, I mean, some countries like Norway have been brave enough to create unilateral mandates and good, good for Norway. Some airlines, like International Airlines Group, including British Airways, has created a self-imposed target of 10% by 2030. And good for them. We're very proud of them for having stuck their neck out and done that. But you're quite right. The UK has to be an ambassador for this. It has to sort of stand up and say, look, you know, we are going to convene an international coalition of the willing and working with the international aviation bodies work towards that target. So, you know, and and that's why I say innovation is is quite complex and sector specific. You know, if we come to our own decarbonizing our own grid, for example, Gavin, we're far more in control of our own destiny. And for example, mandating, you know, nuclear mix or whatever we wish to do to decarbonize the grid is a little more easy than international industries. The last set of issues that that you talked about in your opening remarks were a whole lot of sort of underpinning parts of the economy. And some of them are interesting to explore and see what the innovation strategy is going to help with. Mm. So uh, you talked about access to the science base, for example, and there's Mm. clearly things in the innovation strategy about that kind of relationship 
And there's also, of course, a new announcement that we've we've heard in in previous months uh, about the new ARIA. Uh, I'd be interested in your views on uh, linking with the science base and 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 also the the role that ARIA might play in this yeah. wider space. So let me start with ARIA because we absolutely should welcome ARIA. There's a phrase that I haven't used so far, but I'll now start to use, and that phrase is risk appetite. One of the things you have to do if you want to create an innovative economy is take a little a little more risk. And if every time you spend government money, if it fails to achieve its outcome, the National um, Audit Office sort of crawls all over you and, and you're seen as having uh, made a great failure, then people won't take risks in the future. So one of the things I'm hoping that ARIA will do is shift the risk appetite by setting high risk high payoff challenges, some of which will work, some of which won't work. And the ones that won't work have to be seen as successes in their own right, partly because of what we learn from them not working, and partly because a lot of underpinning science or technology might come out of trying something difficult and failing. So I absolutely welcome ARIA, and I hope it gets a sense that you don't have to, if you want to proceed with certainty and innovation, then you'll fail. So I'm really looking forward to uh, to that. If we have a look at the rest of the economy and how we can become more innovative, the infrastructure that the government provides is also vital. This is a bit industry specific. So some industries, for example, require high performance computing. And so access to HPC clusters and ways of providing small companies with access to capabilities that they wouldn't be able to capitalize themselves becomes a necessary part of scaling the, the part of the, the digital part of the innovative economy. Um, I've mentioned manufacturing centers, and actually this is something else we should be proud of in the UK. It's another area where other nations turn to us and say, oh, tell us how you did that. And that's our high value manufacturing catapult. So the collection of centers around the United Kingdom which are there as resources for small, medium, and large companies to get right at the leading edge of manufacturing, uh, quality manufacturing, and low-cost manufacturing. And that's been a tremendous boost for SMEs in the UK. So really, we have to sort of replicate that type of thing across other industries. I don't know much about the pharmaceutical industry or the biotech industry, but similar facilities uh, have to be provided where government capital can be shared across multiple growing small innovative companies. And the last thing that you talked about, and just to finish off with really, was agility. And it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts on what the issues are in the UK and and what needs to happen to make a more agile environment. I think one of the things we have to recognise, particularly in a highly democratic society, is that if you give everybody a say on every decision that we take, then things can take a long time to make those decisions. And we have to accept that some of our global competitors are able to act with a make it thus command from somebody um, sitting in a high place. Now, you know, I'm not suggesting we break down the, um, the barriers of democracy to make ourselves a more innovative economy. That would sort of spoil our whole uh, um, sort of uh, ethos of our, uh, uh, our, our democratic way of life. But I just think we need to find ways of doing things a bit more rapidly across everything we do. 
And it might be introducing legislation. It might be in the way that we raise finance. It might in in all walks of life. But, you know, if the government can see a week as a long time rather than a short time, if industry can see a week as a long time rather than a, a short time, if PhDs didn't take three years but took uh, six months, I, I, I'm not blaming any one uh, party here. If all of us can almost get like a wartime mentality without the violence behind innovation, perhaps the lessons that we learned from the vaccine task force actually is a great sort of case study where the rule book was sort of thrown away. Instead, you know, we did have a focal point as a nation, which is to get to a vac- safe vaccine as quickly as possible. I think we did that brilliantly. A great coming together of of government and the leadership of Patrick Vallance, uh, who did a brilliant job, and you know Oxford and AstraZeneca and the other sort of uh, partnerships that took place. A real case study in how agility can actually come to fruition and produce a good result. And one of the things that the innovation strategy does have is a new sort of mission focus and s- some specific technologies yeah. that the government has decided to <laughs> to choose, which has a bit of a history as to whether the government should try and pick winners or not. But from what you're saying, it is very helpful to get on and do some things. Yes, it, uh, this is always a challenging discussion when people say, should, should we pick winners? Because it's obviously challenging if you're not in the list that hasn't been, uh, hasn't been picked. Look, I, I, I think it's, it's one of these areas where there's no perfect answer. You do need focus in life. As a nation, we can't do everything. There are some things that we need to be really good at. There's certain things that we need to be good at, but in partnership with somebody else. And there's other things we might have to say, look, we'll leave that to other nations to do. And that's across national security, across well-being and across wealth creation. And I think when we pick those things where we know either we want to contribute to the international coalition of the willing or we want to do ourselves, then we need government support and government um, and government partnership. That might mean picking industrial winners. It's no secret, and and to declare an interest, my own company is trying to push a small modular reactor program into the UK. This is a massive enterprise, and it's not just for my own company. It's to try and create a whole new industry in the UK, which has to be a partnership between the multiple industries involved, the government, the regulation, and the whole net zero ecosystem. We have a great partnership with government on this, but it is an example where we have had as a nation to pick a winner. You can't back everything in nuclear. You can't. So just before we finish, one final question. If the government introduces the different measures identified in the innovation strategy, what impact do you think this will have over the next, say, five years? So there are many ways of measuring innovation, and some of them are perhaps spurious. Some of them measure one aspect of innovation. The simplest measure of all for me is the percentage of our gross domestic product we're spending on research and development, because that to me is a pretty good indicator of our faith in the long-term innovative nature of our economy. Right now, the UK is not doing so well. It's a 1.7% of our GDP is on uh, R&D, and there's a disproportionate spend by government as opposed to industry. We've got to get that up to 2.4%. If we can do it within five years, that's great. And it's got to be done not just with the government spending more, but with industry spending more. And I think if we're approaching 2.4% or a trajectory to get there at the end of that five-year period, then I think we would have said, "This this is working. 
we could talk about this all day, but we have run out of time. So, Paul Stein, thank you very much. Thanks, Gavin. Uh, it's been a great uh, discussion. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. My guest this week was Paul Stein, Chief Technology Officer at Rolls-Royce. The UK Innovation Strategy was the topic of a free evening event organised by the Foundation for Science and Technology on the 13th of October. A recording of that event, plus details of all our other activities, can be found on our website at www.foundation.org.uk. Next week, we'll be looking at space technologies, and my guest will be Sir Martin Sweeting, Executive Chairman of Surrey Satellites Technologies Limited. Until then, goodbye.